appreciate uh, your faithfulness in ministering to us in song this morning. I hope and I pray that our hearts have been encouraged. You know, you, you're probably looking up here and saying, that's not Pastor Daniel. Um, for those of you who are new here, my name, is, my name is Mike. I'm also one of the pastors here at Faith Church. Pastor Daniel is away visiting family this week, so for better or worse, you're stuck with me. Um, all that to say, I am excited about the opportunity to open the word uh, with you all this morning. And as we get started, I'm going to ask that you go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. That's going to serve as our text this morning. John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 42. It's a large chunk of scripture, but I hate breaking up the story. There's so many good truths in here for us. So we're going to charge through John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42 uh, this morning. And as we get ready to dig into the word, we're going to start with a little exercise. I am going to give you some instructions, and here's what I ask. I ask that you follow the instructions to the T. Think you can do that? There's going to be a little bit of math. I'm going to warn you, but it's not going to be algebra, I promise. So it will, we'll keep it pretty simple. But as we start this off, here's what I want you to do, okay? I want everybody to pick a number between 1 and 10, okay? Think of that number in your head, okay? Don't say it with anybody. Don't share it. Don't write it down. Think of a number from 1 to 10, okay? You got it? Number by 9. Multiply that number by 9, okay? So you have a new number in your head now, okay? Now you're going to take that new number... And you're going to add the two digits of that new number together. If your answer was a single digit number, your first digit is a zero, okay? So now add those two digits of your new number together, and you should get a brand new number. Maybe not. Maybe you get a different number. That's fine. But add your two digits together. All right, so here's, here's what I want you to do now, okay? I want you to subtract five from that number. We're getting tricky. Subtract five from that number. Got it? All right, so here's where we're going to make our jump. Now what I want you to do is I want you to choose the letter that corresponds to your number. If A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, D equals 4, and so on. I want you to choose the letter that corresponds to your number. Have we got it? All right, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick a country that starts with that letter. Okay, pick a country that starts with that letter. Keep it in your minds. Don't tell anybody, okay? Pick a country that starts with that letter. Now I want you to think of how that country is spelled, okay? Okay, think of how that country is spelled. Think of the last letter in the spelling of that country, okay? Now what I want you to do is I want you to pick an animal that starts with that letter. Pick an animal that starts with that letter. Think about it in your head, okay? Now I'm gonna ask you to think of the spelling of that animal. The last letter in the spelling of that animal. And I want you to choose a fruit that starts with that letter. Okay, you got it? All right, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a, a freaky jump here. How many of you are thinking of a kangaroo eating an orange in Denmark? Oh, okay, somebody got creative. All right, so here's the deal, all right? So we got a few hands out there. Here's the deal. Now, either I have psychic skills and you guys hired way more than a pastor, and you didn't realize it. Or there's a reality about life that certain things have predictable outcomes. Certain things in life have predictable outcomes. So take, take Larry Bird, for example, one of my favorite basketball players of all time. When the game is on the line, Larry steps out on the court. You can always expect that something magical is going to happen, right? He's going to get the ball. He's going to take it with the seconds going down, and he's going to win the game. It's inevitable. 
or the Lions, okay? So we've got, we got the Lions game coming up on, on, on Monday night. You know where I'm going with this. They're playing my Packers. It's inevitable the Lions are going to fall hopelessly short of expectation. Season after season after season. It's inevitable. It's predictable. Yeah, I know. I went there. But you know, most importantly, when we talk about our walk with God, when we talk about our life in Jesus, and we look at scriptures, whenever Jesus shows up on the scene, we can take it to the bank. Something special is going to happen. In fact, when Jesus shows up on the scene, lives are never the same. You know, as we look at this passage of scripture here this morning in John chapter 4, we're going to see an example in life that is no less amazing, no less astounding, no less morning as we look at our text. When Jesus shows up, we're going to see that he brings life. But not only that, when Jesus shows up, we're going to see that he ignites a heart of worship. And then lastly this morning, when Jesus shows up, he empowers our mission. He empowers our mission. Let's start this morning by looking at our first principle. When Jesus shows up, he brings life. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it. We're going to have the scriptures up on the screen as well for you to follow along. But I would encourage you to follow along in your scriptures as well. John writes this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You know, as this passage opens up, we find Jesus heading north to Galilee. Why was it? What was the reason that Jesus was heading north to Galilee? Well, we see some answers jumping out at us in the text. One reason could have been scrutiny of the Pharisees. In verse 1, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. That was a reason suggested in the text as to why Jesus was heading north to Galilee. Now, here's the deal. If you read the Old Testament or you read the New Testament, you find that Jesus was not concerned about getting under the Pharisees' skin, right? Jesus was one of those guys that was faithful to poke the bear. But, but, but you know, he, he wasn't concerned about controversy. He wasn't concerned or fearful of the Pharisees. But rather, he had a desire not to discredit his dear brother's ministry. The vital ministry of John, paving the way for the coming of the Messiah. So, so we see that the scrutiny of the Pharisees, okay? Jesus is moving north. But I think more significantly, as we look at this text, I think a very critical reason why Jesus was heading north to Galilee was he had a divine appointment to keep. The scriptures say that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. You know, there were, in fact, many routes traveling north to Galilee that did not take him through Samaria. One was along the seacoast. One was through the region of Perea. And you know, while the path through Samaria was in fact the shortest of these routes, to be sure, given John's desire in his gospel to reveal the Messiahship of Jesus, perhaps the reason that this story is included is to highlight the fact that Jesus had a divine appointment to keep. 
He had a vital lesson for a very chosen lady. And in fact, I would say that in this text, we see that Jesus has a vital lesson for us as well. Traveling through Samaria was significant for several reasons. As as we understand history, we understand that the Samaritan people were ethnically impure. Okay, this entire nation was built on the fact that these Jews were captured. They intermarried with the Assyrians. And for the, for the pure Jewish community, they saw these Samaritans as sellouts, as half-breeds. They were worse than the Gentiles. But not only were they ethnically impure, they were also religiously impure. They adopted the religious views of their captors, a belief system that was horribly polluted, which led to a tremendous amount of religious prejudice on the part of the Jews. Many would travel miles out of their way to avoid interaction with these Samaritan people. So when John says that Jesus felt compelled to travel through Samaria, Jesus clearly had a God-appointed purpose. What was that purpose? Well, I think it becomes increasingly clear as we read on in chapter 4. John writes in verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. You know, as we look at this text, we see that Jesus intentionally traveled into the heart of spiritual, racial, and religious darkness. We see that Jesus intentionally sent his disciples into that city to buy food that would inevitably be prepared by unclean hands. Then we see Jesus intentionally parking himself out in the open beside a well that all but had a sign over it that read unclean. And as he watched the Samaritan woman approach and begin to draw water, Jesus intentionally asked for a drink of water from her bottle. Now, why would Jesus, the eternal word of God, perfect in holiness, just and true, reach into the very heart of darkness and approaching this Samaritan woman and ask for a drink of water from her bottle. Even the Samaritan woman knew that this was not a proper scene. And in fact, she says to Jesus in verse nine, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why would Jesus intentionally take such a bold step? I think Jesus... I think the will of God saw past ethnic differences. The will of God saw past cultural differences. The will of God saw beyond religious imperfections. The will of God saw a woman lost in sin and hopeless apart from the all-sufficient saving grace of Almighty God. So let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you willingly crossed ethnic boundaries Religious boundaries, social boundaries for the purpose of fulfilling God's gospel will. When was the last time that we allowed cultural prejudices to keep us from going where God has called us to go? Church, where is our Samaria? Where is our Samaria? 
You know, if Jesus lived in our town, what boundaries would he be crossing? Do you think that Jesus would be happy that we as a church are pressing into our Samarias? I can't help but think that if Jesus were here, he'd be going into the bars. He'd be hanging out at the casinos and reaching into the very darkest of the darks with the penetrating gospel light. Why? Because people are hurting there. Because people are suffering there. Because people are apart from the knowledge of knowing him there. And I think Jesus desires for us to be about that as well. I remember when I was a young dad living in Illinois, right around the corner from our house, um, we had one of the largest Hindu temples in all of Chicagoland, the Sri Venkateshwari Temple. People came from all over. My kids always looked at it and thought and assumed that it was a castle because it was this massive marble and gold structure. It was beautiful. And I remember for for probably three or four years, we drove past that temple. We saw it, and my kids never asked any questions until my son became of the age of nine or ten, and he he could see that something unique was happening there. And he asked me, Dad, what is that place? And I said, son, well, that's a place of worship for the Hindu people. And he said, do they worship the one true God, Dad? And I said, no, they don't, son. They, they worship many gods. He said, false gods? And I said, yeah. Like idols, Dad? Yeah. Hundreds of idols adorned the walls of this temple. And he said, do they know about Jesus, Dad? I said, son, many of them don't. And my son looks at me, and he teared up in his eyes, and and this is a moment that I'll never forget as a dad. He said, dad, we need to tell them about Jesus, dad. We need to tell them about the one true God. And I know as a a parent, part of my my heart was like super excited because I I saw in my son a passion to reach into what he knew as as a cultural Samaria, right? A religious Samaria. He desired to see the gospel penetrate into this dark place. But the other part of me felt this this knife digging into my heart as I'm thinking to myself, I could never go there to share the light of Jesus. Why? Perhaps, perhaps I'm struggling to see the world through the eyes of Christ. Truthfully, brothers and sisters, in comfort and complacency, I'm happy to exist, maintaining status quo. I'm about my life. I'm about my work. I'm about my family. I'm about all of my priorities, and I miss the point. You know what? Jesus was all about shattering status quo. And I should be too. You know, as Jesus responds to her question in verse 10, his motive becomes crystal clear for us. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's as if Jesus is saying here, you only knew the gift of God. Because you're talking to the eternal son of God who carries in himself the very gift of God and he's offering it to you right now. I long to give you living water. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus shows up, he brings life. He brings life. He answers the deepest, darkest problems in our heart. And he meets us in our mess. He meets us in our yuck and he gives us life. However, in spite of Jesus' pursuit, she clearly still did not get it. In fact, she responds in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is so deep. Where do you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, it's amazing to me that she's still thinking in terms of the physical. However, Jesus' offer was nothing of the sort. In fact, the water that Jesus spoke of had several unique characteristics, as we see jumping out at us in the text. First of all, it's the very gift of God. It's free. It's unmerited. You can't work for it. There's no labor that will bring about God's love, God's gift. It's the very gift of God. It's free. It's the source of true life. You know, just as physical water nourishes the the fleshly body and is necessary for physical life, so living water nourishes the soul and it enables an eternity of joy and pleasures forevermore in God. This was not water that could be drawn from a bucket, but rather this was Jesus offering himself as a means of the Samaritan woman obtaining a true relationship with him. She addresses Jesus in verse 12. It's almost as if she's a bit offended at Jesus' offer. She immediately asks, are you better than our father Jacob? It's almost as if she's saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? You know, Jesus is gracious to respond in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up unto eternal life. While the well water falls short, there's yet another characteristic of this living water. Knowing Jesus satisfies This God-sized void that's been eating me alive. Living water satisfies the soul. In fact, living water provides a lifetime of satisfaction, a lifetime of peace, a lifetime of contentment. My only satisfied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is enough. What an opportunity Jesus is offering her here in this passage. I am here that you might have life. What an amazing interaction. Why would John include such a powerful text in his gospel account? John 20, John 20, 31 states this. These things are written. This book, this account is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is that source of life, that eternal source of life. And by believing, you might have life In his name. Just as Jesus was calling this Samaritan woman to partake of the living water that he had to offer, Jesus is inviting us into that same glorious reality. Come and receive life in me. Drink freely. Her response to Jesus is interesting here. And I have to say, I'm not surprised at her initial statement. She'd be a fool not to want life. She says in verse 15, sir, give me this water. But based on what she thought she understood, she wanted it. However, it's so clear as we're looking at this text that she still didn't completely understand what Jesus was offering her. When she she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink this water or to draw this water. She's still fixating on the physical. Jesus was desiring to bring her to the point, though, of understanding 
He wanted her to under, understand the heart, the meat of what it was that he was looking to offer. So he does the only thing that he could do to help her understand. He opens her eyes to what it was that he was truly offering. He exposes her spiritual need. You know, while the physical need was unmistakable, she was physically thirsty. Her spiritual need was much greater, and sadly, she was blind to it. Jesus states to the woman in verse 16, go call your husband and come back. You know, the woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus' penetrating words cut to the very core of this woman's reality. Jesus' desire here was not to humiliate her. But rather, his motive unmistakably was to open her eyes to a need that was infinitely greater than merely something to drink. In order for this woman to embrace the full scope of what Jesus was offering, life in him, she had to come to grips with the fact that without this gift, she was dead in her trespasses and sins. There was nothing that she could do physically to fix this reality. Her issues were deep. They were penetrating They invaded every aspect of her life and her character. What she needed was regeneration. She needed life. You know, brothers and sisters, apart from Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, how would you respond to a situation like this? You know, a Jew you'd never met before exposes a sin that you thought was hidden. You know, Jesus called her out on her adultery. As uncomfortable as this must have been for her, she could not help but acknowledge the fact that Jesus did, in fact, have extraordinary insights. In verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. However, in an effort to avoid conviction and deal with her guilt, she attempts to suck Jesus right into the heart of an academic controversy where people ought to worship. It's almost as if she's saying, Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, where do you stand on the issue of where people ought to worship? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is where people ought to worship? As if trapped and nowhere to run, this spiritually mangled sinner resorts to an irrational argument in an effort to get the spotlight off of her inadequacy of God. What's interesting, however, is that Jesus does not return to the issue of adultery. And while this woman is ever seeking to slam the door shut on her heart, Jesus faithfully pursues her. He pursues the heart of the issue, the the how and the whom of her worship. You know, while this Samaritan woman seems intent on the where of worship, this mountain or Jerusalem, Jesus remained resolute on his purpose of pointing her to the how and the whom. Jesus says to the woman in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. In other words, the the location is irrelevant. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, this brings us to our second main observation. This morning, as Jesus shows up in John 4, he's faithful to bring life to a lifeless, sinful woman. 
by offering her eternal life in himself. But not only was Jesus here in Samaria to bring life, Jesus was in Samaria to ignite worship in the heart of this woman. And according to this passage, Jesus was concerned with two things as it pertains to worship. Worshiping the Father in spirit and worshiping the Father in truth. You know, as we approach true life in Jesus here this morning, just as was true for the Samaritan woman, we must connect with the truth of who God is in all his glory. He desires for us to know him, right? But furthermore, we must see ourselves in light of that glorious reality. And as I connect with the depths of my depravity, the reality of my lifeless condition, Jesus invades my heart and he gives me life. And the cool thing about this is that God's spirit in that moment confirms with my spirit that this reality is good. My heart celebrates this new life in Jesus. This is the worship that Jesus is calling us to. This is the worship that Jesus is calling the Samaritan to. The scripture says in verse 23, Father, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God was seeking the Samaritan because his desire was to see, see her heart ignite in the worship of the Father. God desires nothing less of us today, brothers and sisters, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And as we're moving through this text, we find the woman finally coming to grips with the scope of what Jesus was offering to her. And she states in verse 25, called the Christ, God's anointed one. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. Jesus says to her in that moment, I who speak to you am he. What a glorious reality. God's chosen son, perfect in righteousness, holy, blameless before God and man. And he's here and he's offering me life. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. God is offering you life as well. He's offering all of us this same life. And sadly for many, we often think of this idea as a past event rather than a present reality. We fixate on the physical, much like the Samaritan, and we fail to see that God desires for us to know him, to experience his grace, to experience his mercy, to stay anchored in his love, in his compassion, in his sovereignty, in his care, to drink freely of his grace, to be eternally satisfied in all it is that he has to offer, to be nourished in his truth, and to celebrate his transforming power. As our story soldiers to a close, we find the disciples returning in verse 27. Scripture says, just then his disciples came back. The text literally reads, as we look at this, it literally reads, in that exact moment, his disciples came back. It's interesting here that just as God had a unique purpose in mind for the Samaritan, so he has a unique purpose in mind for his disciples as well. In that exact moment, it was no accident that just as Jesus was declaring his Messiahship to the Samaritan woman, his disciples returned. Jesus desired that truth for them just as much as for the Samaritan woman. I who speak to you am he. I am your long-awaited Messiah. Well, this message carried weight for the Samaritan. Imagine what it must have meant for devout Jews such as his disciples. 
I am the one who would sit on David's throne forever. 2 Samuel 7. I am the one who will rule and reign in righteousness. Psalm 45. You know, I imagine in that moment, their hearts must have been flooded with thoughts regarding the prophetic promises of his Messiahship, his birth, Isaiah 9, 6. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. His authority, the government will be upon his shoulders. His name, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But not only that, his rejection, Isaiah 53, I will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. His substitutionary atonement, I will bear your grief. I will carry your sorrows. I will be wounded for your transgressions. I will be crushed for your iniquities. The historic culmination of all that they suspected he might be. The truth becomes realized in that moment, in that exact moment, when he says, I who speak to you am he. This truth was no less transforming for them. And in fact, the scriptures say in verse 27, they marveled that he was talking to this woman, but no one says, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Why not? Well, I think it's, I, I think it's because Jesus was empowering their mission. He was making it clear to them why he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. Truthfully, brothers and sisters, the beauty of this mission is how it transcends cultural norms. Their petty prejudices no longer mattered. Through Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was their very purpose, his very purpose in coming to earth, to call out from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, to raise up true worshipers, to awaken dead hearts. I would imagine that in that moment, the facts began to come more clearly into focus as both Jesus, Jesus' disciples, and the Samaritan woman came to grips with the full magnitude of this situation. In fact, startled by the truth in verse 26, verse 28 states that as she was confronted by the reality of who Jesus was, she did the only thing that made sense to her. She abandoned her pursuit of water, the physical, and she immediately returns back to town. Verse 28 says, So the woman left her water jar. She went away into the town and she said to the people, Come and see this man who told me all that I have ever done. Can this possibly be the Christ? You know, as the truth of Jesus invaded her heart, I imagine that in that moment, her spirit must have erupted with joy. Have you ever found yourself so overwhelmed by the exciting news that you just heard that you had to tell somebody? It was amazing. It was transformative. It was powerful. What do you think was so exciting to her? Well, you know what? As we look at this text and we see this story unfold, I can't imagine her thinking anything, but I am known by God. He's offering me eternal life. That life is the greatest good that I could ever experience. And what is good and true for me simply has to be good and true for you as well. To not tell everyone about it would simply not be loving. This amazing truth rescued me. It brought me life. I can't help but sing his praises. Out of this heart of worship, I long to invite others into the joy of knowing Jesus. Sadly, brothers and sisters, for many in the church, this is simply not the way we live. 
Our gospel zeal has long since been lost. Our worship has grown tired and stale. Our sense of urgency in the mission has faded. Why is that? Well, unbelief perhaps? Because truthfully, brothers and sisters, if we really believed the gospel, if we believed in its transforming power, if we, if we believed that God was able to resurrect dead hearts and bring them to himself and make them clean through the blood of his son, then we couldn't help but tell the world about him. Perhaps it's unbelief. Perhaps it's lack of love. Perhaps fear paralyzes us or selfishness. What about you? Where does your heart rest when it comes to this mission that Jesus is empowering? Because we see the progression, right? Jesus gives life. That life is good. I can't help but celebrate it. And because it is good, I have to tell somebody. Just as the truth about Jesus invaded your heart and changed yours to do in the hearts and lives of everybody you know. If we truly believed that only Jesus brings life and that apart from him, we cannot know God. And furthermore, we will be subject to his eternal wrath. We'd be passionate. We'd be passionate about bringing others into that same glorious reality. This truth transcends cultural norms. And Jesus' desire here is for us to take it to everyone we know. For as it is good for you, and it's good for me, it's good for a world that doesn't know him. In fact, it's their greatest good. You know, as this scene continues to unfold, the following, or following the Samaritan's departure, the disciples approach Jesus in verse 31. Text says this, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said one to another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And as we talk about this mission, we talk about a truth that transcends culture. Jesus was speaking here about a mission that encompasses all of life. It encompasses all of life. And imagine how the disciples must have felt here. You sent us on this mission, Jesus, to go get food. We knew you were hungry. We traveled a considerable distance to obtain this. Now we're offering it to you and you're telling us you're not hungry. Jesus sent us on this mission, and for what? You know, as we watch this interaction continue to unfold, it's imperative for us to understand that Jesus' purpose for the disciples had nothing to do with food. As was the case with this entire interaction in chapter 4, the food was to serve as an object lesson for them that was to teach them about a truth that was so much greater than feeding their bellies. Our first indication comes with his initial response to them in verse 32. I have food to eat in which you do not know about. What's he saying here? Well, you clearly don't understand what it is that truly sustains me, what it is that drives me, what it is that motivates me in life. Still thinking about earthly sustenance, they mumbled to each other trying to determine if anyone brought him something to eat. Once again, Jesus was faithful to steer them away from the physical and to the heart of what it was that he was getting at. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
What is interesting here is that while Jesus was no doubt very hungry, he was weary from his journey. The text tells us that. His desire was to lead them to the fact that God's mission was what kept him going. It was what kept him going. God's mission was his all-encompassing passion. God's mission was his life. And what was that mission? Well, it was calling out worshipers to enjoy life in him eternally. This forces me to ask some questions. What am I to be about as a child of God, as a follower of this mission, as a follower of Jesus Christ? The answer to this question is seen in all of John 4, and it's the crux of all that Jesus is seeking to teach his audience. What am I to be about? Well, I'm to be about embracing salvation in Jesus. That's life, right? Embrace it and really embrace it. Paul writes that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Embrace it, this life in Jesus. But not only that, enjoy that life is supremely good. That's worship. Delight in it. And desire to lead others to enjoy God's greatest good for them. Now, I can't think too complex when it comes to the things I'm supposed to be doing. The strategy is simple. Know God, love God, worship God, tell others about God. Keep it simple. That's what God has called us to do. Can we say individually that our food is to do the will of the Father and to finish his work? Is that what sustains us? Sadly, my own life, I love my compartments. Anybody else compartmentalize life and kind of break things apart? In my life, this is the battle that I run through as I think through my day, okay? Compartment number one, work. That's what I do Monday through Friday, right? That's, my, that's what brings home the bacon, right? I do this Monday through Friday from 8 to 5. Family, that's what I do from 6 to 10. My duties around the family. Recreation, yard work, honey-do lists. That's what I do on Sunday, or Saturday, rather. Church, that's what I do on Sunday. Nap, football, watching the Lions lose. That's what I do after church. That time is for me. Mission, well, whatever's left. <laughs> That goes to God, right? You know, is this the model that Jesus is referring to? Is Jesus happy when I fit mission around my increasingly busy life? Does that bring honor me, right? We all know the answer to that question. And what then does Jesus desire of me? How then am I able to live in a way that honors God and fulfills his mission? How am I able to embrace a mission that encompasses all of life? This is what this radical way of thinking might look like as I shifted into my compartments, work. If I'm going to embrace a mission that encompasses all of life, I'm going to see my work, see my job as an opportunity to extend the grace of God to those who are far from him. Yes, I've got tasks to do. (laughs) I'm not talking about what you do during your eight to five. I'm talking about who you are during that Monday through Friday, eight to five period of time. I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. So I'm going to live for the kingdom while I'm at work. And I'm going to look for opportunities to shine the light of his glorious promise to a world that doesn't know him. That means at the water cooler. That means in the break room. That means in the parking lot. I'm ready to shine brightly. Family. I make my primary family pursuit about knowing Jesus. 
Loving Jesus, sharing Jesus with everyone you know and you care about. Every family moment becomes a worship moment. And no, I'm not talking about getting robes for your kids and turning your house into a monastery. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about conversation that's directing their hearts to the bigness of their God. I'm praying regularly for my neighbors with my kids. I'm talking about their teachers. I'm talking about their day in a gospel way. Tell me about your friends. What are some of the things that God is doing in their lives? How can we pray for them? They need Jesus, don't they, kids? Yes. Looking for ways to shine Jesus into my family. Looking for ways to be intentional in the way I I live during my family time. Every moment is a worship moment. I go outside and I'm playing with my kids and all of a sudden the rain falls down. I have a moment. I have an opportunity, right? We get irritated at the rain and we go inside. Or we stand there and we look at the heavens and we say, wow, isn't God good for watering his plants and his faithfulness, kids, to care for all that he's created? Let's rejoice in who God is right now. You know, we're, we're shining brightly for the sake and the honor and, honor and glory of his name. Every family moment is a worship moment. I look at my recreation differently. Instead of it being time for me, I make my playtime about enjoying God and all of the gifts of his grace that are around me, the nature, the toys, even the yard work, life versus the leftovers. Teaching them to embrace the mission in their extracurricular activities. Doing sports as a means of worship and mission. And as a parent and as a kid, you might be saying, how do I do sports in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus? You know what? We have opportunities every moment throughout that game. It irritated with a ref and you're thinking, you know what? I could raise my voice. I could complain. I could have a bad attitude. Or I could say, you know what? God calls me to live in a different way. I'm going to shine Jesus right here in this moment. We lost. I hate that we lost. But you know what? I'm going to shine Jesus in this moment. I'm going to reflect Christ to those people who just crushed us. And they did it in a mean way. But I'm still going to shine brightly. I'm going to show them Jesus. I'm going to live my life in a way that reflects his honor, his glory, and his messiahship. I'm going to show Jesus to them. Church, you know, we come together, we gather corporately to to celebrate the journey of grace that God has put us on throughout the week. Sunday should be a time for us to gather as brothers and sisters and celebrate the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all that he's done for us. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, but always returning to the steadfast love of the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rest. Taking time. I've been in the trenches. I've been fighting against the devil all week. I need my rest. Football has a place. Relaxing in the afternoon so that I can recharge my batteries, so that I have the opportunity to achieve more of what? You guessed it. God's mission. Right? It encompasses all of life. And when his mission is our life, there is always enough time to accomplish all that he has for us. And what will be the end result of this mission that encompasses all of life as we close out our time here this morning? Well, we see it in our text. It's a harvest that's inevitable. Verse 35, John writes this. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you didn't labor. Others labored and you have entered into their labor. I love Jesus' choice of words here. Do you not say? It's as if Jesus is calling out on their desire to procrastinate on the mission. It's as if he knew what was in their hearts in that moment. In that exact moment, you know, as they're probably thinking, you know, the truth can wait. This is awkward. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, embrace the awkward. Let's get after it. Truthfully, though, as Jesus was addressing the disciples in this passage, it's clear what he was trying to say. Open your eyes to a world of missional opportunities. Get busy now for the fruit is falling off the trees. You know that point, right? We all have apple trees or fruit trees of some kind in our yard or ones that are close to us. And you know that point where the wind blows just right and there's a shower of fruit. Man, Jesus is saying, look, the fruit is falling off the trees. In fact, the hard work has already been done for you. I am sending you to reap for that which you haven't labored. Your job is simple. Pick the fruit of my labor. And as we look at this in light of all of chapter 4, the message becomes super clear. Come to the fountain of God's grace. Receive true life in him. I must embrace the truth about Jesus with every fiber of my being, forsaking who I was so that I can embrace new life in Christ. Enjoy that fountain as God's greatest good for my life. Take it to the world. And God's part in this whole equation, well, he is going to be the one who's going to change the lives. He is going to be the one who brings the harvest. What's cool here is that if I'm not first enjoying God, then I can never call others to enjoy him. So how does this story end? What is the rest of the story? Well, we see it in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. What an amazing end to a fascinating story. A surprising spiritual awakening in the town of Sychar. An unlikely woman becomes the means of an unlikely people turning to their Jewish Messiah, even though they were not full-blooded Jews. This should encourage us in the pluralistic and religiously and ethnically diverse world in which we live, that God has a people in our Samarias. He's chosen surprising instruments to reach them. You and me, right? So the call is simple. Let's get after it. Let's be about the work that God has given us to do. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your love, for your compassion, for your kindness. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Forgive us, Father, for the ways in which we choke you out of our lives. Forgive, you, forgive us, Father, for the ways in which we live for ourselves and we fail to see the transforming power 
of your gospel. Help us, dear God, to live and walk in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Help us, God, to embrace your mission. Help us, God, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us, God, to love you. Lord, we thank you for all it is that you're doing in us. I pray, God, that you would spur us on to achieve great things for your honor and glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.